welcome everyone to the December 2023 monthly educational webinar from uh, NESGP. And this month, we're delighted to be joined by Dr. Anthony Cunliffe, who has been a GP for 17 years and practices part-time in South London. He started working for Macmillan Cancer Support in 2012 as a Macmillan GP facilitator and subsequently became a GP advisor and is now the national lead medical advisor and the clinical advisor for London. So with no further ado, Anthony, I'll hand um, everyone over to you. And um, we, we, it's a 45-minute event, so you, you're planning to talk about 30 minutes and then a sort of 15 minute q and a at the end so speak to you on the other side thank you richard hi everyone um great to be here today um and i was asked to talk about cancer and primary care um now obviously cancer is an enormous subject um uh, you know the whole pathway we're involved with in primary care i am here from macmillan cancer support as richard said so the, there will be quite a big focus on personalized care and personalized cancer care specifically because that is um, our focus at Macmillan uh, Cancer Support. But we will talk a little bit about the rest of the pathway as well. And also, um, I'm going to share, try and share lots of resources with you. There's lots of embedded links in the presentation, and then I'll, I'll focus in on some of the resources at the end as well to try and um, share things with you that hopefully will enable you to support people living with cancer better in your roles in primary care. So why is my, oh, it doesn't seem to be moving on, Richard. Oh, try, try giving you space bar a bash. Space bar, ah, there we go. Thank you for that. Um, so um, it's a fact that in the UK, at least, the majority of people who are subsequently diagnosed with cancer first present um, with the symptoms or concerns about cancer to primary care teams. Um, and as primary care physicians, we have um, an essential role throughout the whole cancer pathway, right from ensuring people are diagnosed as early as possible and as efficiently as possible, supporting people through the cancer treatment and recovery, and ensuring that they can live as well as possible after their treatment for cancer. Regarding early diagnosis, we have a big challenge as GPs because every day we will consult with people who present with symptoms, multiple people a day that present with symptoms that could represent an underlying cancer. Um, but in actual fact, each full-time GP may only diagnose around six to eight people with cancer each year. So we have this really difficult job of identifying those patients whose symptoms do need urgent investigation. While we make sure we're not sending patients for unnecessary tests, which can cause undue worry, and we're also not adding pressure to the health system because we'll all know that um, we measure cancer waiting times in, in the UK um, and our trusts have a really difficult job daily to try and meet those cancer waiting times. Um, as well as early diagnosis, an average size practice is likely to have over 300 people uh, living with cancer registered, uh, some that may be living well, but many who will have their quality of life affected by the cancer diagnosis, either by the cancer itself or the treatment that they've received. And we'll focus a little bit more on about that later. Um, people living with cancer will all be mostly be living with multiple unmet needs, both clinical and non-clinical. And unless we um, create situations where needs can be assessed, um, people will um, continue to live with those needs unmet. And again, we'll talk a little more about that later. Um, as practice team supporting uh, all our patients with a cancer diagnosis with good quality personalized cancer care is a really important part of our role. Um, 
and delivering personalized cancer care does need a whole team approach. And um, even as sessional GPs, we'll all know that there are multiple new primary care roles now that can be a, play a really important part in this, in particular, care coordinators, social prescribers, um, and the other allied health professionals and health and wellbeing coaches we've, we've had introduced into our primary care networks. Um, really important to look at personalized cancer care through an MDT lens um, to ensure that they do have the needs identified and then subsequently are supported or signposted to services to meet those needs. Um, little mention about health inequalities because people that we care for from minoritized groups are more, more likely to be diagnosed late and more likely to report a poor experience of care. Um, and so we should make sure that the support we offer should be tailored to meet the needs of the most vulnerable in our communities. And if we want to deliver good quality personalized cancer care, I know we're here from primary care today, but we do need to ensure that we have better integrated services. So I'm going to kind of run through the cancer pathway and, and thinking about our role as GPs and primary care clinicians in this cancer pathway. So we really want to make sure that um, everybody has a good referral process. And those of you that have any involvement with the primary care network, uh, directed enhanced services will know that there's an early diagnosis module in that. And one of the focus is about improving our referral practices. Um, for an individual receiving a referral for suspected cancer can have a significant impact and cause a lot of worry and concern. And, and because, as we've said, most people will have a pathway that does start in primary care, we've got a really vital role to ensure that their experience of diagnosis or, of course, reassurance is as supported as it can be. Um, communication skills are really vital and it is really important and I get challenged on this quite a lot, but it, it is important to ensure that a patient knows that they're on an urgent suspected cancer pathway um, to help them understand what to expect. It can have a significant impact on their experience of a diagnosis. It can have a significant impact on um, DNA rates within our trusts. Um, a lot of uh, I get a lot of GPs telling me that they don't like to use the word cancer when they're doing a two-week wait referral, but I would say that unless it's strongly felt otherwise, for whatever reason, um, it really should involve a discussion regarding cancer by the referring cl clinician, because otherwise the first time they're gonna hear the, the, the um, suspicion of cancer is either by over the phone by somebody arranging their appointment or potentially when they arrive in the department. Um, if people do have the right information, they can be much more prepared for what might be a very difficult process, not only to navigate, but emotionally a difficult process to go through. So I really urge people to always have that conversation when we're doing a two-week referral to make sure that the patient knows what to expect. Um, providing as much relevant information on the referral is, is really important. Um, this goes for diagnostics as well as two-week weight referrals. As I say, our trusts are under an enormous pressure every day with the number of two-week weight referrals that they receive. And a really important part of that process is triage so they can make sure that people are sent to the right clinics, sent to the right tests if it's a um, if they're going to be going to test before they see a specialist um, and that the people that we're most concerned about can be triaged more urgently. Um, so it's really important that we put as much information on that two-week referral form as possible, not just ticking the boxes, but very much using the, the free text um, sections to, to really elaborate on why we're referring someone, why we're concerned, and why we're concerned that they may have cancer. Included in this is making sure that all tests that are necessary in advance have been done. So things like use and ease, because people might be triaged straight to radiology investigations, and which can be delayed if, if they don't have an up-to-date uh, GFR. 
um, and also making sure that people understand uh, that we put information on frailty or special needs on our referral forms because a lot of people are being uh, triaged straight to test now and if people aren't going to be able to uh, manage that for whatever reason it's really important that we put that information on our referral forms so people can be managed in the best way that they can. Um, I mentioned communication already but it can also really uh, support effective safety netting. We're going to talk about safety netting specifically in a little bit, um, but we patients really do need to know um, when to act if they've not received an appointment. And I guess it's probably worth saying at this point, a lot of you will have maybe heard that the two-week wait referral uh, cancer waiting time has has been uh, is no longer um, reported on. Um, because there's been an introduction of the new FASTA diagnosis standard, which means that somebody needs to be diagnosed or reassured that they don't have cancer within 28 days. This should not impact or affect our business as usual behavior as GPs. We should still be advising people that they should be seen within two weeks because the introduction of the new standard actually means that people probably need seeing even sooner rather than later. So we should carry on safety netting people and telling people that they should be seen within two weeks and to let us know if they've not received an appointment. There are various digital tools that can help with this. Um, and as I said, there's lots of embedded links in here. Um, so the first one is to, uh, a link to some information on the Macmillan website about digital safety netting processes and the different ways we can do this, either as an individual, but much better done as a, at a practice level, or even some people are doing it at PCN level now, so that using, using digital tools that flag up uh, people who should have been seen and so we can check that they've been seen. So I'd really encourage you to explore that website. And if you aren't using safety netting process or if you're sessional GPs and you're working in practices, make sure that you understand what their cancer safety netting processes are. So if you're doing a referral, that those patients are included in those processes. Um, we've also developed a urgent suspected cancer pathway within AccuRx. So many of you will be working in practices that use AccuRx now. Um, so this is a cancer pathway um, and it's a useful tool to provide the patient with information so that they know that they are on an urgent suspected cancer pathway, but also introduce that safety netting pathway. So what it is, it's a text that gets sent to the patient that lets them know they're on an urgent suspected cancer pathway. There's links embedded into the text to uh, information on the Macmillan website so people can explore that further if they want more information, but also they automatically will then get a text two weeks later that flags that they should have been seen yet uh, by that, uh, they should have received an appointment by that stage and um, if they've not, to let the practice know. So I'd again, I'd encourage you to use that link to explore that AccuRx pathway. Mentioned digital safety netting already. It's a really great if this can be done at practice or um, PCN level. Obviously, if you're a sessional GP, you might not be involved in developing these processes, but being aware of what the practice or PCN processes are so that you can make sure that any referrals you, you do are included in those processes is really important. Uh, Bit of a mention of patient information leaflets. We've mentioned that information for a patient at that point of referral is really important so they know what to expect. Lots of areas have their own patient information leaflets, but there are national ones, and I've, I've put a link in there to the one from CRUK. Again, um, it's really important that if you're a sessional GP, especially if you move in practice to practice, that you uh, maybe explore what patient information leaflets they have regarding two-week rate referrals um, so that you can make sure that people are um, provided with them when you're doing a referral. Um, and if, if patient if practices don't have their own, then use the one from CRUK. Um, and obviously with links now, these can be texted to the patient. 
I'm not sure if any if you're all aware of Gateway C, but Gateway C is a free health, a free cancer education platform. It's run out of the Christie in Manchester. It's funded by Health Education England, so it's free for all GPs. Um, it's got all sorts of things on there around cancer um, throughout the whole pathway, and they do have a specific module on improving the quality of cancer referrals. If you don't know about Gateway C, I definitely encourage you to sign up to Gateway C um, because they have a whole heap of modules on there that you'd be able to use as part of your personal development plans. So a, a bit of a plug there to explore Gateway C. Um, supporting the diagnostic experience. So most people will be told about their diagnosis at first within secondary care, of course. Um, but this doesn't mean that as primary care teams, we don't have a really important role to play in what will potentially be one of the most significant and difficult moments in a person's life. The other thing it's probably worth mentioning here is that because of um, digital tools like the NHS app, we are, have, we are experiencing our patients who are first finding out about the cancer diagnosis uh, through that app or through other health tech um, and, and therefore presenting to the GP to ask more about it. So it's really important that we embrace our role as primary care teams around that point of diagnosis. Um, everyone should, so every patient should be given a named key worker in secondary care, which is generally a, a specialist nurse or a support worker. Um, but the changes to the COF Cancer Care Review Guidelines, and again, we'll go into this in slightly more detail later, but the introduction of the review within three months and as close, ideally as close to the time of diagnosis as possible, um, has really introduced this role for us in primary care to reach out around the time of diagnosis to help the patient understand that primary care teams are there for them through their experience with cancer, but also very specifically as part of the COF is to highlight what support is available locally and nationally as well. So, um, and it may be that in your roles that you are uh, being asked to do some of these reviews. Um, bit of a plug for the extended roles in primary care here. I know that as sessional GPs, you might not be uh, as close to some of the uh, the extended roles we've got within primary care now, but these are often often carrying out these interventions. Um, we have cancer care coordinators and social prescribers who are doing this, and they can re offer a really holistic review and, and needs assessment to patients. So I guess maybe one thing to say here is that if you're a GP and you um, you are seeing a patient with a new cancer diagnosis or speaking to a patient with a new cancer diagnosis, really consider referring them to the social prescribers or the cancer care coordinators at that point, because they can really offer that holistic review um, at that time. You might not be necessarily able to do that as a GP, but thinking just utilizing those roles around that time of diagnosis might be really important for a patient. So maybe consider that because uh, there's a, there's a, National survey every year. It's called the National Cancer Patient Experience Survey. There's a link if people want more information to it there. And unfortunately, year on year, um, the questions around the support that people feel they get from primary care through their experience of cancer is really um, poorly answered in that over 50% of people feeling that they weren't supported uh, adequately by primary care. And so we really need to think about what would doing or potentially more what we're not doing uh, that are leaving patients feel unsupported, feeling unsupported. Um, we know that patients' patients' experience around that time of diagnosis can often um, indicate how they're going to experience their cancer diagnosis uh, 
as time goes on. And so it's really possible that a more proactive approach, which is now encouraged by ICOF, could have a significant impact on how supportive people see primary care during their experience of cancer. So we were proactively reaching out, offering support, making them aware of services that are available. Um, I think it could, uh, it could have a big impact on how patients feel. Um, I want to plug direct referral to Macmillan Services. Now, we'll talk a little bit about Macmillan Services and what's available later, but we now have direct referral that's live in, in the primary care IT systems um, and in some, some social prescribing platforms as well. And it means that as a, as a healthcare professional or admin can do this as well, um, we can refer directly to Macmillan. Um, uh, using a, a really form, it should take 30 seconds a minute to complete, and then it can be emailed by our admin support to Macmillan, and then the patient will be proactively contacted by someone from our support line. Um, they'll have an assessment then, and then whatever their needs are, they'll be signposted to um, the section of Macmillan that can help with this. Um, and there's a myriad of services from Macmillan, which I'll, I'll talk about shortly. Um, in EMIS, uh, the referral can be accessed in the document section. If you just type in Macmillan support line services referral or probably just Macmillan and it'll come up. Um, it's a tick box form. The patient's details will be automatically pulled in. It's a tick box form and you just have to tick you know, whatever boxes are relevant. So whether people are, are wanting um, advice on finances, potentially um, getting back to work, um, energy advice, whether they want to uh, speak to one of our specialist nurses on our support line. So you just tick the relevant box, it's emailed, and then the patient will be proactively contacted. Um, in system one, you can get it uh, through resource library, um, just by typing in again, Macmillan support line services referral form. So most of you should have access to this, um, if, especially if you're working in EMIS and system one practices. Um, bit of a, I've mentioned communication skills a couple of times and just a bit of a plug that communication, communication skills really are something that we should be uh, repeatedly updating ourselves because it is a skill and you know, perhaps most of us feel that we're good communicators, but we can always, like with any skill, we, can, we always need updating and we'd encourage everyone to maintain their confidence and education in this area. And there are multiple communi communication skills training that are available uh, through the Macmillan um, Learning Hub, all free. And there's a link there to our prospectus. And if you go to, from pages 20 to 25, um, you'll see what communication skills training are available Um and how to register is in that uh, prospectus as well. But I will, there is a slide on that later as well. So talking a little bit about supporting people after treatment, we often hear that people feel like they've fallen off a cliff when they come to the end of their acute treatment. Uh, they're no longer being seen regularly by the cancer team in secondary care. And often people feel very lost at this point. And it's often a, a low point in people's experience of cancer, even if they've had successful treatment, because they will likely be living with some of the consequences of that treatment as well. Again, and we'll talk a little bit more about it later, but the changes to QOF now, because of the, we've got the initial review, but then we've got the holistic review that needs to be done within 12 months after a cancer diagnosis, which means for many that it could be offered um, around that time of acute treatment where they're no longer being seg seen regularly by uh, secondary care and a review within primary care at that point. And again, a needs assessment and an understanding of what services are avail available in the local community to support them could be a real lifeline for those individuals. Um, I'm aware that we don't always receive the right information from secondary care to uh, help us understand when, when they have come to the end of acute treatment. But I think on the whole, if we offer these reviews, a holistic element of the cancer care review between nine and 12 months, we're going to catch most people um, around the end of acute treatment where they have, which is a high time of need, as I said. 
Um, an individual's needs after cancer treatment can be myriad, and we'll have some slides on that a little bit later. So a review should involve both clinical and non-clinical needs. And again, we're finding that some of the additional roles within primary care are also carrying out these holistic reviews. Um, and that's fine as long as there is a really clear way for patients to then be seen by a clinician if clinical needs are identified in those reviews. Cancer care review templates in primary care IT systems can support a more holistic review. Um, hopefully you're all aware of what the cancer care review templates, but all the IT systems, as well as some of the adjuncts we have, like Ardens and DXS have, have cancer care review templates all aligned to the Macmillan cancer care review template. So I'd really encourage you, if you're doing a cancer care review on a patient, that you use one of them templates because it really can support a more holistic review and act as a bit of an aid memoir so that we are bringing up uh, and asking about things that we might not autom uh, automatically ask about. Again, digital tools like uh, in AccuRx, uh, we have a Flory within AccuRx. You're probably mostly aware of Flories that we use for multiple long-term conditions. Uh, but there's a cancer care review Flory, which can be sent to a patient ahead of a review. And it acts as a mini needs assessment. So there's just a few questions for them to answer, some tick box and a free text section. So people have that opportunity in advance to think about what's really important to them at that time and what matters to them at that time. And then when they send the information back, um, it'll go straight into our IT systems to to then guide that review to make sure, sure that it really is a patient-centered review. Um, it also has links in there again to Macmillan uh, so that we're, we're providing um, a route to further information if people want it at that time. Um, there is something called a Macmillan Holistic Needs Assessment Tool. If people are interested, there is a link there. This is mainly done in secondary care, but we are seeing this done in primary care as well. And in some areas, they're using this as part of the cancer care review. One thing it's really important to say is that when needs have been identified, it really is essential, whether as part of a care plan or not, that people are then empowered to either meet those needs themselves or signposted to professionals or services that can help them with the issues that have been highlighted. There's no point us uh, identifying issues and unmet needs if we're not then able to signpost people. And I know that can be a challenge for us in primary care, especially if you're moving about, you might not be aware of the services that are available. So I would say if you are in that situation, then either that direct referral to Macmillan services or a referral to the social prescriber or uh, care coordinators in that primary care network where they can do, they can spend a bit more time with the patient and they'll have a really good awareness of what services are available locally. Um, yeah, I've just I've already mentioned the direct referral. That can be done at any point. It's not just around that time of diagnosis. At any point, for somebody who's had a cancer diagnosis, they can be referred to Macmillan, and we'll talk about the services later. So I'm going to talk a little bit specifically about personalised cancer care. As I say, I am here from Macmillan, and our uh, focus is to try and deliver, make sure everyone is receiving good quality personalised cancer care so they can live life as best as they can. Um, just a bit of background, really, we are seeing the number of people, you know, we're getting people diagnosed earlier, we're getting people receiving uh, newer and better treatments. So we're seeing a lot more people survive long after a cancer diagnosis with the 10 year survival now being uh, around 50%, which means that um, these are the numbers nationally of people uh, across the UK of people living with cancer, but it means that the numbers in, on our practice list of people living with cancer are significantly increasing. And that people
or health or disability after their treatment for cancer. Um, and a very significant number of people are in need of emotional support support for people at, uh, during cancer treatment and after a ca after cancer treatment is just really, really important. Uh, many people living with anxiety and depression caused by the cancer. Um, and again, maybe a referral to an IAP service or being aware of what um, psycho-oncology services are available in the area. Or again, just a direct referral to Macmillan where they can receive, they can be offered um, free counselling um, or to the social prescriber who will be aware of the, the services in, your, in the area that you're working in. Financially, it's a really important thing to flag. Uh, this slide says 570. This uh, number's actually gone up to 800, over 800 pounds. So 800 pounds a, a month worse off is the financial impact of a cancer diagnosis. And uh, being aware of maybe the citizens' advice services in your area um, or um, or potentially going through your social prescribers again, who will be aware of that, or a direct referral to Macmillan where people can get um, financial advice about how to uh, make sure that they're receiving all the benefits that they can. Um, I've included this slide um, and it's one for you to maybe look at it. I'll not go through it in detail, but I think it's just a, um, a useful infographic. It comes from a piece of work called Cured But At What Cost? Um, so people who've been cured of cancer but suffering from a myriad of issues impacting on their quality of life because of the cancer or the cancer treatment. And as I say, I'll not go through all them, but you, you see that there is uh, many, many issues that people can be facing and that they may not be getting the correct support for. Um, Obviously, as GPs, we uh, look after people with multiple long-term conditions, and we know that the majority of people now who have a cancer diagnosis will be living with at least one other long-term condition. And it's just really important that right from that point of diagnosis, diagnosis that um, we're looking at how these long-term conditions are being managed because they, the condition itself and the, man, the treatment for the condition will be impacted by the cancer and by the treatments people are receiving for cancer. So it's really important that when somebody receives a cancer diagnosis that we do make sure that we're optimizing all the long-term conditions so that we are increasing their chances of a successful cancer treatment. I mean, this is just another slide to talk about all the different needs. Well, I'm not, um, I'm not linger on this, but it's one to look at when you receive the slides. I'm just going to talk a little bit about the process of personalised care. Um, it really, there are, you know, it's a simple process, really, but it, it does, it can take time. People do need a supportive conversation. A big element of that will be identifying needs. And then people need to be provided with the right information that they need, um, that uh, ideally they receive a care plan. And as GPs, we wouldn't probably do that. But certainly a lot of our care coordinators and social subscribers are developing care plans with people when they do their cancer care review. And that I, really importantly, they are, they are navigated to services to meet those physical and psychosocial needs. And if we're not aware of those services, uh, social prescribers, care coordinators, and other roles will have directories of services. And also there are national ones, which I will mention at the end. Uh, so I just thought I'd include this slide just because I think it's a slightly interesting way to look at cancer. Often we see cancer as tumor specific, but obviously within each of those tumor groups, people will have a very varied experience depending on stage of diagnosis, depending on comorbidities and frailty and access to treatment. Um, so this is just a, a slightly different way of looking at cancer uh, in these three groups. So the, the group one where often people are diagnosed early or it's a fairly indolent cancer where people 
people will have a, a very high a chance of a long-term prognosis with that cancer. Then we've got the group in the middle, uh, which uh, often people are receiving treatment. They may be living with treatable but not curable cancer. Uh, so they may live a long time after diagnosis, but maybe may have quite a lot of morbidity because of the cancer or its treatment. And then unfortunately, there's still this group of cancers, which survival for the majority is very short term. Um, we are seeing some changes in this with a lot of the new immuno-oncology uh, medications that are available now to people. We're certainly seeing a bit of a change in this. So a really good examples would be lung, which used to have a very poor prognosis, but where people are having improved prognosis now because of the immuno-oncological treatments. So it's probably just worth a bit of time, uh, spending a bit of time on that slide. Um, we've talked about COF. Uh, so this is just a reminder that there are uh, two elements of the cancer care review now, one that needs to be done within three months and one that within 12 months. And I really would encourage that the three month one is done as close to the time of diagnosis as possible. And the 12 month one is done between nine and 12 months after diagnosis. So they were catching people when they're no longer potentially being supported by secondary care teams. Um, I'll not uh, linger on this, but um, this is just something about the, the COF does ask us to use a structured template. So do familiarize yourselves with them and that we've got the Cancer Care Review webpage, which you can use the embedded link, which has got a whole host of resources that can improve our Cancer Care Review um, delivery. Um, so that's that. There's also a top 10 tips to uh, carry out an effective cancer care review. So if you don't have much time, just a bit of a micro learning, you could get that from our website. Um, and there is a, a link later on to all our top 10 tips because we have many of them. Just going to briefly mention safety netting. I'm conscious of time. Um, safety netting should be part and parcel of what we do in primary care. And we've, we're all certainly taught in our general practice training about the theory of safety netting. Um, uncertainty is an avoidable element of general practice, particularly relevant to cancer. Um, and it's important that when we people are presenting or are sent for investigations or that they're referred on an urgent suspected cancer pathway, that we make sure that no one falls through the net. Um, and it is everyone's responsibility as, uh, as teams to make sure that this doesn't happen. But if you do have, and the places you work in do have system level processes, then they can, it is much more effective way of making sure that nobody falls through the net and doesn't get seen in the right time frame. Um, there are tools out there, and I think I, there was a link previously, uh, there's a link there to the EMIS electronic safety netting tool, and there's a support page uh, on the Macmillan website, there's a link there too. Uh, and these tools can be used for monitoring people, not only on an urgent suspected cancer pathway, but that have been referred for investigations or that have presented low risk symptoms that you just want to make sure that you follow up uh, to make sure that those symptoms have cleared to its worth, especially if you're using EMIS to explore that tool. And I also mentioned learning event analysis. Really, this should be part and parcel of what we do in primary care. I'm sure many of you, we, you know, many of you do them each year for as part of your appraisal process. Um, they can lead to, you know, the, the purpose of them is to identify when something often has maybe not gone as well as it could, but they can also identify uh, superlative um, cases as well to try and um, disseminate that learning. But often it is uh, cases that perhaps where things could have gone better and that they can lead to improvements right from an individual level to team level, but also to wider system level changes as well. Now, hopefully people are aware of the terminology now. There was a little bit of confusion a little while ago when, because the um, from an RCG 
NLP viewpoint, learning event analysis do differ from significant event analysis. So many of us may not have a significant event in, in, a, in, a, in a year and so may not need to include significant event analysis in our appraisal, but we should be uh, in, including learning event analysis where we've identified where something perhaps could have gone better and that we're trying to learn from that and share that learning. From a cancer point of view, there are any specific cases that should, should be considered, but often it's those case, uh, cases where there's perhaps been a delayed diagnosis or a late diagnosis. And it really, if we're doing these LEAs, we really should be uh, doing them on cases where we've been directly involved. Maybe that's tricky if you're moving about practices as a sessional GP, uh, but we will all have cases of, of uh, where things could have gone better. And it's important to include these as part of our appraisal process. We do have a learning event analysis toolkit. Uh, the link's there. It's on our website. Um, so again, I'd encourage everybody to go and have a look at that. So I'm just going to talk a little bit about resources now because I'm probably coming up to 30 minutes now. Um, so we have a we have uh, role-specific resources on our website. So we have them for allied health professionals and practice nurses as well. But we have a specific page where all our resources for GPs are. There's a whole uh, host of resources there that can help us in our day-to-day -day practice right from early diagnosis through to end of life care. So I'd encourage you all to uh, click on the link and just browse the resources there for, that are there for GPs. These aren't on the learning hub. This is open access on our website. So I'd encourage you all to go and have a look at uh, the multiple resources that we've got. Um, I mentioned our top 10 tips. Um, there's a whole list there of the top 10 tips that we have for micro learning. I know we're all busy and we don't always have time to um, to do more in-depth learning, but you could explore our top 10 tips and see, where, see what you could use for micro-learning there. And again, all of these are freely available. I have put a link onto our learning hub there. Um, so Macmillan's Learning and Communication Hub has many, many resources on there for multiple healthcare professionals, some of which are specific to primary care. And the prospectus that I linked to earlier has specific primary care pages. Uh, to access anything on the Learning Hub, you do have to register, but I think it's worth doing that because once you're registered, then you can go in at any time and access any of the free learning and courses that are on there. One thing I'm going to specifically mention is our rapid referral guidelines for suspected cancer. Um, so these are uh, based on the NICE guidelines, the NG12 guidelines that were introduced in 2015. Um, it's Again, this is open access through our website, and it's a really easy way that you can click on um, and see very simply the different referral criteria for the different cancers. Some of you may already have different tools you use for that, but I just wanted to flag that because it might be something that some of you find useful. And there's a link there at the bottom as well that you can go straight to that. So I'm going to briefly talk about the Macmillan support line, and just to make people aware of the lots of different support that we can offer individuals at Macmillan and these are available for anybody affected by cancer so somebody with cancer or somebody close to them um, uh, it's a confidential support line and on the next slide I'll go through a list of everything that can be um, uh, that they can address um, we do have cancer specialist nurses on that support line so um, 
if people have got queries around their treatment, around symptoms that they've got, they can speak to one of our cancer specialist nurses who will do their best to address the issues without them necessarily having to go to the hospital teams. Um, but we offer a lot more than just the cancer specialist nurses. We have a financial guidance team. So we mentioned that the statistic of people being over £800 a month worse off due to a cancer diagnosis. So many people, especially at the moment, might be struggling financially. And we have a specialist financial guidance team that we that will do a needs assessment and make sure that they're receiving all the benefits and uh, support that they need to manage their finances. We have a welfare rights team, again, that can support with benefit access, um, but also that can uh, support people to access Macmillan grants that people with cancer uh, can access as well. And we've also got an energy advice team, again, maybe because of the cost of living crisis at this time of year, people might be struggling with their energy costs and our energy specialists can ask, help them with that as well. And we have a work support team. A lot of people, we've got statistics to show that most people who are in employment at the time of a cancer day diagnosis, it's really important to them to get back to work when they're feeling well. But a lot of people don't know where to access uh, support for this. And certainly as a GP, I don't feel like an expert in supporting people to get back to work. Of course, some people may have that support through their employers, but many won't. Um, and so we have a, speci a specified work support team that can help answer questions on getting back to work, but also uh, support people uh, to understand sick pay and taking time off, etc. One thing I think we don't do as GPs, which I think we should do more often, is signpost people to online communities because we know that people will get significant benefit from engaging with peers who've gone through a similar experience or are going through a similar experience with them. So we have a 24-hour um, online community. Many of the other cancer tumor-specific charities have online communities as well. So this is just one of many, but uh, advising people about online communities, I think, is probably one of the most useful things we could do for our patients so that they, can, that they can engage with other people that are going through a similar experience to them. Um, we have a telephone buddy scheme. So this is particularly important for people who potentially are socially isolated, where we they can be given a telephone buddy. These are volunteers um, who will engage with people for a period of time, as long as a patient needs um, uh, when they're going through an experience with cancer or after an experience with cancer, if particularly if they're feeling social isol socially isolated and don't have the support around them that they might need. So that's something that's worth making pe people aware of. And then I think this might be my final slide. Um, often it's really hard for us as GPs to know what's available in, in the area. So Macmillan do have um, a help in your area tool. But in, in honesty, I would probably signpost you to Cancer Care Map. This is a national tool. It's, uh, it's a specific charity. It's updated very regularly. And all people need to do is go in and put the postcode in. Or, of course, you could do it for the patient as well. And it'll bring up all the different support services that are available, either through the NHS or through community services in their area. So that's a really useful thing, uh, link to give to a patient as well. Yeah, so I think that's my the end of my slides. I will stop sharing now. Uh, there may or may not be any questions, but I'm very happy to answer any if there are. That's wonderful, Anthony. Thanks so much for that. You probably didn't, I probably needed a drink of water after that. <laughs> That's really good. Um, and go through an, a roundup of, of all the, well, it's a wraparound package, isn't it? Yeah. 
offering it's got everything there right from right from the beginning all the way through um and 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 it's particularly interesting that this this drop in income um it, it's quite it must have quite an impact on, on on the people and families um with cancer diagnosis yeah absolutely i mean I, I would say sorry i meant to say after we didn't focus too much on early diagnosis today i'd happily come back at another time to focus on early diagnosis it's just with cancer being such a a big topic it's really hard to cover it all in one session and um as i said and support we do focus on personalized care so i, I felt that was that needed to be my focus today yeah no definitely um i was gonna we, we, people if you want to put your or colleague should i say people do put any questions um you've got in the chat but meanwhile if you, if, if you don't mind anthony i'll i'll, I'll mm-hmm question i want to ask so and i'm going to slightly front load this but as a gp locum working lots of different practices one thing that is often said of us and to us is is about it kind of is sort of the the, the negative aspect of of not having that that sort of um the arrow in our quiver of continuity of care um and but but as a sort of as a downside of working as locum but not really exploring the actual the upsides and those upsides could be things like a second opinion um and fresh pair of eyes but also the fact that we are often supporting practices in 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 underprivileged communities um and where where people might really be struggling to to otherwise get diagnoses and management because their practices just can't recruit so we're supporting those but also we might be doing general practice because we have other holistic things that we might might be might be interested in but also um it's i i think it's a skill that we we often have to develop as locums we've actually got to get a relationship with a patient we've got 10 minutes 15 minutes to to do and so actually i think we become quite experienced in in, in hitting the ground running when it comes to engaging with patients with that fresh pair of eyes so so i'm on on What's my question? So my question is, is do you, apart from me having completely front-loaded that, um, can you think, is there, do you think there's a particular or specific role that GP locums can have when it, when it, when it comes to cancer diagnosis and, and keeping the plates spinning when, when a patient has been seeing a regular GP who's away for a week and we're covering uh, what are the things we should be doing, we should be particularly thinking about and doing and, and, and talking to colleagues about? Yeah, I mean, it, it is obviously a challenge as a law come up, especially if you're moving your own different practices rather than being potentially a long-term law come, law come in one practice. Um, I think it is that fresh pair of eyes and, and maybe somebody bringing something up for the first time that, you know, other people haven't brought up, um, perhaps as more full-time GPs maybe or salary GPs maybe we can often kick the can down the road or think, well, I'll discuss that when I see them next time or whatever. But as a locum, you know, you, you might just have that one opportunity to try and support that patient. Um, so I think there is an important role there. I think I would say though, and I, I guess I mentioned it a few times in my talk that I think being aware of the other roles within the practice and the, the, that can help with someone that you might not be able to help within 10, 15 minutes and you might not be seeing that patient again. So just being really aware of that, that, you know, get them to see the social prescriber, get them to see the cancer care coordinator, refer them to the direct macmillan services because you're just adding that extra cushion, that extra safety net in, in them that if you've not been able to, you know, manage, identify needs, manage needs in that one appointment and you might not be seeing that patient again, just being aware of all these different um, roles and services that are available um, 
and, and be proactive about it. So get them to book in with the social prescriber, do the referral, which is proactive, because then you at least know that somebody is, you know, actively going to follow that up um, rather maybe than just, you know, suggesting. I mean, most people should be obviously be able to call our support line themselves, but I think it's just useful to have that kind of um, guarantee that somebody will be contacted um, because, you know, you might not see that patient again. Um, so I guess that would be a, a bit of a tip for me, really. And the safety netting, really, really making sure that we know safety netting processes because we don't want to disadvantage a patient because we're just seeing them once and that therefore we're not and we're not aware of the services. So we're not adding um Adding, adding them to the safety netting tool, et cetera. So being aware of what the practice processes are so that we, we're not disadvantaging people that we're seeing potentially. Okay, yeah, lovely. Thank you. And we've got a couple of questions come in as well. So I'll, mm-hmm. I'll read one's from David and one's from Jack. So David Church says, thanks, Anthony. Very good all-round wrap. Um, are, are second opinions still available on the NHS? Is it practically impossible? Oh, it's practically impossible here. David's from Wales. Okay. He works in North Wales. As we do not have nearby second options very often, and it goes against our approved referral pathways to refer to the other far more distant hospital anyway. Right. Um, I mean, I'm not as aware of what the situation might be in Wales, but I mean, second opinions absolutely are available and not just around diagnosis, but around treatments for cancer. Um, there is something called that Macmillan created called the Raising Your Voice Toolkit. It's on our website and in there is information for people about how they can access a second opinion. So it might be worth having a look at that. It's a, it's a difficult process and we are, you know, obviously we, we don't want to upset any of our colleagues, but, you know, it is a patient's right to have a second opinion wherever they might that might be really i had a patient last week that is undergoing treatment but they wanted a second opinion on their treatment and that you know i'm in london and they're going to the christie in manchester for a second opinion um and they we just had to contact the christie to understand what process that was they're just going to have a virtual appointment with them it doesn't mean that they'll transfer the care necessarily but i think it'll just reassure them that perhaps they are receiving the the right care for them at the right time that's great thank you um so jack says um thanks for an interesting talk of the specifics on where things are different compute systems very useful to locums who may be more familiar with one system than another so thanks jack for that and toby edwards got a good question are there any circumstances when you would not inform the patient being referred on a two-week wait pathway of the suspicion of cancer so i mean i find it hard to I mean, I'm biased on this one, I, I, I think, but I find it hard to see situations. And, and we know that, so we just did a, a local audit and 40% of people hadn't, didn't know they were on a, on a cancer referral pathway. And just the, the, the consequences of that can be significant. I guess there may be situations where you're really worried about, you know, somebody's psychological safety, potentially um, about mentioning cancer in, in, in that appointment. Um, or potentially people with learning disabilities potentially who might find it hard to understand um, that because obviously when we're when we're communicating that we want to reassure people that you know the vast majority of people that get referred on a you know over 90 percent of people who get referred don't have cancer and that's a really important part of that communication so in many ways we're you know we're saying we want to be sure we want to be certain but most people don't turn out to have cancer so there is some reassurance in that communication and it's important that that's part of it but i I find it hard to see situations, you know, obviously some of us know our patients super well um, and might worry, but I think 
you know, patients should have the information, they should understand. And for the vast majority, um, as I said, unless somebody's really worried about psychological safety, about mentioning cancer in that appointment, um, I, I, I can't see many, many situations. Okay, Anthony, that's really helpful. Thank you so much for that talk. Thank you so much for answering those questions. Thanks, Toby, Jack and David for your your questions as well. Thanks, uh, Ellie and Jacqueline for organising these events. Um, And we'll put this up on YouTube. We'll do it as a podcast um, and we'll make sure... Uh, and it's all right if we include the PowerPoint slides as absolutely, well. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Lovely, because that's yeah. got all the links in it. And that's absolutely, yeah. And so we'll put that all online and let you all know about it. So... Thank you, everyone, um, and hopefully have a wonderful Christmas and, and see you in the new year. Take care, everyone. Goodbye. Thank you.